So welcome to another episode of the Can Marketing Save the Planet podcast. And today, Gemma and I are delighted to be joined by Brigitte Clements from ACAN, Strategic Leader ACAN, and also the MD of Loki Architecture and Development. Brigitte, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. So let's kick things off, Brigitte, because you do wear a few hats. Let's kick things off with an introduction to yourself, the work that you do at Loki, and indeed the role that you play as strategic lead at ACAN. And what is ACAN? Right. So I am the managing director of Loki Architecture and Developments. And as the name suggests, we work in a client capacity as architects, but as well as developers. So my personal backgrounds in building physics, um, sustainability, um, it's a very technical background, but I'm also a designer. So I am the architect and fused with my understanding of commerciality and property. I work with impact driven investors to develop projects simply that I believe in, um, and that hit the highest metrics of sustainability. So my specific interests are embodied carbon of materials, a fabric first approach. I can go into that in detail later. Um, whole life carbon slash circular economy principles are embedded right from the beginning. So that's the basis of, let's say, my day job. Um, but my other kind of major hat is with ACAN, which is the Architects Climate Action Network, but we are a um, diverse network of built environment professionals, which focuses on um, what's we in the built environment. And by built environment, I mean architects, engineers, contractors, planners, policymakers, for example, what we can do to address the climate crisis. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, I think, probably the more impactful and exciting part um, because we do everything from education to policy shaping to advocacy um and so i think that's a big interest so and then beyond that um, i'm a researcher i consult on sustainability strategies for example and i am once again returning to academia my hubbub of comfort um, and i'll be joining the ets program at the architectural association fantastic wow so lots going on and Let's dive straight into the role then at ACAN because this interests us a great deal. Because what, what you know, it's this is industry professionals coming together as a collective group independently to try and move the dial with regards to the built environment and indeed the climate crisis, of which there is this incredible integration of of challenge um, and tension, probably similar tensions that we have in the marketing profession around, we want to do the right thing. But of course, we've still got to drive profitability and building efficiencies and, and all of those, and all of those tensions. So, so you can take this position of trying to drive the change. How did ACAN come into being? Oh, it's a very exciting story, I think. Um, so it was started about four years ago by small groups of architect, architects, sorry, who met under a bridge at the, uh, inaugural Extinction Rebellion protest. So, um, this is exactly one nugget of change. Um, since then we have grown rapidly. So we have about 800 active participants directly in our channels. And we've also expanded internationally and, uh, have just over 10 international chapters. So everything ranging from Aiken Australia to Aiken Nigeria to Aiken Sweden. Um, we have three main aims. So to decarbonize now, ecological regeneration and cultural transformation. 
And as a decentralized organization, we are both, we're very plural, let's say, um, in our activities, but also kind of our topics and thematics. So we have about th- nine, nine thematic groups. Um, and we focus on issues such as circular economy, existing buildings and retrofit, natural materials and construction, embodied carbon, climate literacy, professional standards. Um, and we have kind of new emerging groups, let's say, in urbanism and climate justice uh, burgeoning. So I'd say that we're very, very iterative and changing and developing. Um, in terms of output, we are quite prolific. Um, so we hold events and workshops and we develop online resources such as educational webinars and develop toolkits. And we work with education and universities. And then, of course, advocacy is probably um, the most important for us. So we give consultation on policy papers, um, and drive petitions. So we change policy with our safe structural timber petition, big success. Um, and we help stop the demolition of the Marks and Spencer's building, which has been, um, also abundant everywhere on the news, uh, yeah. as of late. And we've been very vocal to change, um, to change policy in regards of regulating embodied carbon. So, I mean, I'd just say that we're, we're quite plural in that. And what you were saying about, you know, the challenges in, you know, the marketing profession, I think actually all industries are uh, kind of facing the same thing. So we're in it all together. And I think what makes ACAN very interesting is um, that as a membership body, we are a network of individuals. So we are a volunteer organization. Yeah. Um, and most kind of climate action organizations, I think, lend themselves more to institutional institutions or, or larger businesses. But here, anyone can join. Um, and you, you don't have to be a built environment practitioner. So we do have a lot um, of engagements from um, people just interested in, you know, upgrading their homes or what they can be doing, um, themselves to address this. So, um, I think that's actually a very interesting thing to give a platform to those who want to have agency. I guess because we all live in homes as well, don't we? And we all, we all, we all live in the built, we are part of the built environment. We are the built environment, but. You, you talk about you talk about how you have you know knowledge sharing and research sharing and, and toolkits and and this this fa- fantastic network of people out there who are sharing their expertise and their knowledge and education. What is the general level of awareness and education like in the industry around sustainability and the climate challenges? Oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, so I would say first I want to caveat everything that I say with the fact that we are in the fastest and most rapid change in kind of the built environment professional that I've ever seen, I've ever seen in my career. So the rate at which policy is changing and trends are changing and also the um, fluency of our client base and customer base is also changing very quickly. So um, I would say that the younger generation especially are the most vocal and fluent. I'd say that in their um, education already in university, these kind of sustainability principles were already embedded. So this is part of the everyday um, knowledge that they're bringing into practice. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit trickier for, uh, let's say, the older guards to adjust. Um, Also because the way things are changing Although very good, there are disadvantages um, 
you know, there's a lot of complexity now in policy. There's um, a lot of liability now with architects. Um, and there's just a lot to keep up with. I mean, innovation is changing so quickly. So I, I think that it's a complex question to answer. Um, what I would say is that I think by and large, the architecture profession is, or the built environment profession is, um, largely on board to moving forward, um, to address kind of our net zero commitments. Um, I would also say in this age of social media, where we use that as a platform to talk about how amazing we are, um, nobody is really coming out to talk about their failures or their lack of knowledge, which is something we need. So it, it's a bit twofold. We talk about marketing. Marketing is basically communication, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so we need to build on the knowledge of others and also learn from the mistakes of others. So I think this is one of the things that's making us go a little bit slower because every architect, because of liability or USP, um, um, doesn't, yeah, people don't really want to share um, what their mistakes are. And um, I I want to challenge that. Um, you know, I try my best, but I fall short. But that's all right. I mean, it's it's part of it. We are part of this kind of, you know, growing trend and we're still in the infancy. Yeah, it's how we it's how we a lot of us learn, isn't it? Through failure and, and actually talking about failures. And we've talked to us, some other guests on the podcast about the, you know, you shouldn't be af afraid to fail at something and then share that because it's the best way of learning. So um, it is interesting. But, you know, clearly recent changes have been made by government and policymakers around timescales and urgency to drive decarbonisation in housing and the built environment. So what are the lows and indeed the highs relating to these changes? Big question. <laughs> Big, Big question. All right. So maybe a bit of context first to explain why this is important. So buildings and construction are responsible for about 40% of global energy related carbon dioxide emissions. All right. So that's, that's where we stand as an industry. Um, and then let's get actually a little bit more deep into the meat of what's happening on the political, um, you know, platform right now. So, um, our dear Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has made a U-turn on his net zero commitments or our government's net zero commitments. Now, my personal favorite is that Rishi Sunak has announced that he will no longer require homeowners or landlords to meet energy efficiency targets. So he forced or he promises not to force homeowners into expensive insulation upgrades. Um, and previously, there were plans to find landlords who failed to upgrade their properties to a certain level of energy efficiency, but these have now been dropped. So who do you think is going to be suffering in these uninsulated homes? Mm. And I would also like to remark that rents are currently highest mm -hmm. now since records began in 2016. Yeah. yeah. So Britain has the worst building stock in Europe. This is not my personal opinion. Um, only it's it's a fact um we have leaky uninsulated houses and our homes already consume about twice the amount of gas as our european friends um and not only are they cold and uncomfortable but they're often dangerous so i don't know if you remember but just a couple of years ago um or was it last year um a two-year-old died yeah. just outside of manchester because of black mold in the flat so we live in a third world country. Like, let's be very, very clear about the situation. 
Um, and so when you actually talk about the reality of what he's talking about, so about 30 million homes need to be insulated. And a third of homes in the UK are, are semi-detached. So as an example, I'm going to use this. So kind of, they say the average to insulate a three-bed semi-detached house is between, you know, seven and 10K. Um, my partner insulated his detached property, this house, uh, this year for 6,000 pounds. So 3,000 pounds for cavity insulation, uh, wall insulation, that is, and 3,000 for the loft insulation. Okay. Right. So that's real cost in 2023. Yeah. Now, in regards to energy bills, um, in this year, poorly insulated homes will have to pay almost a thousand pounds more than um, other houses on their energy bills. So with the national average for a kind of gas and electricity bills, we're talking about about two and a half thousand with the worst properties and, and often the poorest live in that having to pay the big brunt. So that's the kind of extent of what we're talking about. Um, and a fifth of our country is living in fuel poverty. <laughs> yeah. So. It doesn't yeah. add up. The cost uh, of inaction, it, it goes so much further than just finance, doesn't it? It, it just keeps building and building the, le the less action that's taken. Well, exactly. And the point is that we need government to help Britons to insulate themselves against rising energy costs whilst at the same time staying on track to hit our net zero commitments, right? So we're talking about intergenerational kind of equity, having a safe, comfortable place for future generations to live. That's really, really important. So, um, yeah, I think the lows, I mean, I'm not even going to talk about gas boilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think the lows. I mean, let's talk about the drawbacks and the negative consequences. One, we're talking about loss of public trust. Yeah. So when our government backtracks on these net zero commitments, it leads to skepticism and cynicism from the public. So it's going to be really hard for um, future policies to gain support from the public. Um, it also normalizes um, kind of a false rhetoric of where we really are. Mm. There's uncertainty for investors, so businesses rely on government commitments to make long-term decisions. And of course, these reversals lead to uncertainty and discourage these investments. So our transition to the green economy will be slower. I mean, in a week that um, the UK should have been up there pan uh, pioneering and championing our, yeah. you know, our leadership in this transition, we're left out of New York. What's going yeah. on? Um and so, yeah, I mean, this is going to have huge implications, of course, also financially, um, you know, the longer we we delay it. And our reputation globally is um, pretty embarrassing. So I'd say that um, that's kind of the <laughs> the low points. I mean, pretty low, eh? Yeah, well, I mean, our current political leaders are basically flat earthers. I mean, you can't fight stupid. So and I'm saying this not as a scientist or, you know, as an expert in the field or as a non-Tory, but just as a regular citizen that's observing, you know, these yeah. hectic climate irregularities um, that was predicted, you know, for the last few decades. So, um, but this is also not new, right? I mean, you know, in Galileo's time when he was saying, you know, that, um, you know, the the earth was round and rotated, the Roman Catholic Church found him guilty and prisoned him for life. So zoom out 
450 years, <laughs> yeah. right? And look at Morgan Trowland and, and Marcus Decker, who have just this year been given three-year sentences for nonviolent climate action here in the UK. I mean, what's going on? So I think we need to kind of contextualize this. But the positives, uh, I'm hugely positive. <laughs> um so the groundswell of change is already here. Businesses are ready to move forward regardless of government regulation. New models of green investment are being developed daily and are being taken up. Um, consumption patterns are changing. Um, for me, I mean, when I go out, investors now make a beeline for me when I stand up and talk, shout about, you know, my demand for sustainable design. Um, and I, I think that the public is just there. I mean, after this announcement last week, um, I went to see how the more right-wing publications um, were covering this. So I looked at the Daily Mail and the Telegraph. And then I looked at the comments and I was really pleasantly surprised to see that the majority of the com comments were really critical of this turnaround. So I think the changes here, um, we need to come together collectively and use our skills, our innovations, our energy and our stories um, to set up for the only shift that can really make us live in balance on this planet. And I think whatever regulations or the slowness of our governments is um, unfortunately something that we just need to bypass and we need yeah. to change. Yeah. I mean, that's that seems to be this consistent theme that we've talked about many times on the podcast is that no one government, no one organization, no one institution, you know, we, we can't wait around for to be regulated and legislated yeah. into doing stuff. You know, we need to be the pace setters. We need to to look at what it really looks like to be sustainable, you know, and I don't just mean that from an environmental perspective. I mean to actually sustain operations. And, and that means not waiting around for governments to decide how you run your business or how you innovate or you know, it, it does mean that taking taking charge and leading the change, and and Brigitte, we met at the uh, at the Reba event where you were talking about reuse and retrofitting, and 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 you were taking questions from the the room, and one of the things um, I remember, you know, you being asked asked the question about the challenges you face, and and there was a you know a couple of you on the panel that were talking about the different challenges, but you said actually if you get the storytelling right. You get the clients on board. They understand. And, and I guess this comes back to us around our position with regards to trying to educate and inform the 10.6 million marketers on the planet to say, you know, hey, we can do a better job at this. Is this opportunity to tell a different story, tell a different narrative? Can you talk about that a little bit, about how that is practically playing out in your profession? Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I, um, I get invited to, you know, various workshops and, um, conferences with other architects. I'm going to use architects for the time being. And what I'm unfortunately finding is that a lot of, you know, the more, um, passionate, let's say sustainable, sustainably oriented architects are really struggling, um, you know, to, you know, make sure that they have continual business and to get this through. I mean, architecture is a very complex um, and difficult profession. Um, and when you run your own business, um, that comes at a multitude of that. So I think that, um, I think I'm lucky in the fact that 
because I've had such a colorful and um, uh, varied background and I've always spoken with, you know, different stakeholders and different people, um, you know, communication has always been the strongest tool and has come very naturally to me. And I don't have a problem. (laughs) Um, And I think I don't have a problem um, because because the way I tell the story and because from my experience, people want to be a part of something that is impactful and that has meaning and that's positive. And we all read the tea leaves. We see what's happening. Um, and so to be a part of that change. Yeah. So you just need to invite people into it. And that's, that's by kind of the storyboarding of it all. And it's not just clients. Um, you know, it's it's also, you know, our politicians, it's our planners, it's our contractors. Most contractors, they like to stay, stick with what they know, right? So getting contractors who've been doing the same thing for the last 20, 30, 40 years and say, no, we're going to try something else. If you yeah. just say, I'm making you do something else, they're not going to buy into it, are they? But, you know, really, you know, formulas of a way of like, this is really going to build out your portfolio. You're going to be able to use this, the amount of connections you're going to have. I'm going to be kind of advertising about this and I'll, you know, bridges onto kind of my network. You'll be known for this. I mean, people get excited about it and people yeah. all want to take agency and be a co-author in a piece of that project. And I think that's really, really important. So bringing people in. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's an important part. I mean, for architects, I think a lot of architects don't quite know how to do that. And we're always, like every industry, on that very, very difficult kind of frictioned edge between wanting to do good and balancing that with cost. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And so, um, I mean, in the last few decades, especially, we've become more and more specialized as an industry. And one thing that's unique to, well, not maybe not just the UK, but what is happening here is that um, all the costings are done by quantity surveyors. So architects quite often don't know the costs of building. And I think since that is our language and the way that we understand value, that's one of the things that we need to understand is how much is this going to cost me? Because the amount of times, and this is why I also went to development, because I have clients that say, definitely, I want a super greenhouse. And they did until they wanted that 80 grand kitchen with, you know, whatever, some quartz worktop, <laughs> you know. Um, and as a service provider, you've got to grant that to them. Um, and with a, as, yeah, as a developer, you can just build it and they will come. That's the kind of idea behind that. But I think you know, getting, getting that buy-in very, very early and really explaining that and bringing people on board the whole time. This is not your USP. What we're doing is not totally original. And maybe even if it is original, hopefully it's not going to be original. I really hope that you publicize it so everyone copies it if you're doing good stuff. So I think that's, that's what we, what does what we need to be doing is, you know, shouting from the rooftops in a substantive way, not, you know, I'm grateful to be recognized for another award, but actually this is, this is what was actually very, very cool and kick-ass about what I've been developing, innovating, doing. This didn't work so well. Would love you guys' idea on it. Great. But like, let's yeah. follow this, this space of openness and conversation and then highlight the stuff that's really great. Yeah. 
we had well, a conversation. Sorry, Jen. We I was just just that comment that you just made there. That reminds me of when we interviewed um, Philip Kotler, who's like the grandfather of of, of marketing, and. And that's exactly what he was talking about. You know, we, we need organizations to be exemplars, but we also need this transparency and honesty about so that we can all learn together. And, and where is that happening was yeah. the challenge that he talked about, you know, because it's all very well organizations and, and, you know, brands saying, Oh, we're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing this. But actually that's not learning. That's not open sourcing. That's not kind of think tanking. How can we do this better? This is what we did. This is what we're open to sharing. What are your views on all of this? And that's that collective intelligence could just scale the pace of change and speed it up significantly. Yes. I mean, you have these kind of great rises and falls in civilizations. And I, I'm sad to say that I don't think we're exactly on the rise in the UK at the moment, but we could be. Yeah. We really could be. We just need to get through the gloss and the sheen, you know, and actually get down to the meat of it. Because what we have in front of us is a huge task. And we, and I'm including you guys in this, but we are designers and we are problem solvers. We're thinkers. We've got all the tools around us. We have a lot of knowledge and we just need a bit of energy and collective action to make that happen. And I think this is where it all comes um, comes through. And we can just we just need to kick into gear. Yeah, yeah. So, what about the innovations and the pace of change? What's I know that in the UK we're we're, we're behind, and given our government, we're slipping. What what are the what are the fantastic innovations happening in the built environment right now that you love personally? Yeah, I mean. Look, you've got these um, big building expos uh, all the time coming in with their um, new innovations. And we are getting smarter. I mean, I'd say the digital side is, um, you know, probably the most prolific, you know, the BIM modeling and all of the the features and, and um, kind of technologies embedded into our designs. We've got smart thermostats and more advanced and effective renewable technologies more energy efficient appliances that consume, you know, less water and less energy. Um, and of course, this kind of new dialogues around ecology and our ability to harness these elements in our environment, like rainwater for irrigation laundry. So there's loads already there. Um, I would argue, um, and I know it's going to sound boring, but I don't care that the greatest innovation right now is in planning policy. Um, and by this, I mean that the development and implementation of new approaches and strategies and regulation and urban and regional planning and even territorial, because we kind of go beyond our borders to address these emerging ta- challenges, improve efficiencies and promote sustainable development in the bar- built environment is the one that's going to be guiding us the most, because otherwise we're just the Wild West. And, you know, the Technologies can be great. Innovations can be great. They can be gimmicky. They can be out of date. I mean, a lot of it for me is, I mean, I design on a fabric first approach, which means that I try to make a good shell of a building um, without the bells and whistles. Those are kind of things that you can add on. Um, And yeah, I think what we need is to make sure that we get the basics right and the foundations right. Um, Otherwise, yeah, it's it's a bit of madness, I think. Yeah. yeah, and you talk about having a strong shell and then a good foundation. What about so? There's only so much space to to build on, I guess. 
what about and then there's a lot of new buildings and a lot of new innovation and and a lot of organizations when you read their sustainability reports they they've moved into brand new renewable buildings they're very sustainable and that's all helping them get to their decarbonization targets what about all of the buildings that are left behind what was happening to those because they're they're taking up space they're already there they've the emissions the footprint it's already set isn't it and simply from a personal perspective sometimes i read these sustainability reports from, from big corporates generally and i think just moving away from the problem into something better isn't solving the problem no, totally. left behind totally no, this is, and this is the biggest push at the moment. So this is the, the hot topic in uh, the built environment at the moment is retrofit first. Um, mm. Because for too long, it's been easier and better to demolish and rebuild and you make your new shiny objects and the inherent energy and carbon load in an asset um, is huge and one that we should already be working with. Um, and I mean, for example, one way that policy needs to be changing is that if I've got a house, if I retrofit it, I've got to pay 20% VAT. If I knock it down, I pay 0% VAT. <laughs> it doesn't, Incentive, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Now, the majority of our buildings uh, that are going to be here in 2050, 2080 are already standing right now. So we're not yeah. going to be demolishing them. And the carbon load, we don't actually have that carbon credit in order to be building, let alone kind of retrofitting everything. So it's a big, big question and a big challenge. Now you are right that it seems like a, and I think this, we're also about getting smart on how we, how we understand this trend of kind of getting rid of your clunky gas guzzling car for a brand new EV electric vehicle. Um, you know, seems like, oh, great, I'm I'm shifting. But I know people that are buying the newest model of, of you know, the shiniest new electric car every year. And that's, that's very, very reckless um, because there is a lot of um, mineral mining, um, transport, dirty industry that goes into manufacturing, producing, transporting, you know, marketing, selling, all of that that goes into that. And that, of course, applies to the built environment. So what we do need to be doing is setting up, um, I don't know if it's a task force or a different department um, in the planning department or building control for us to assess and undertake, you know, these, you know, comprehensive, yeah, tests of why a building cannot be retained and enhanced. Yeah. Um, we need to be celebrating what we've got in the first instance. Mm. And okay, I will say that's a lot of buildings that were built um, you know, in the 70s and the 80s were not really good quality, so there are issues, but we should be I mean that this is part of our challenge. You know, yeah. Our challenge. And I also think this is something we need to be putting into universities when yeah. uh, we give students projects. When I was given a project, it was kind of tabula rasa. Here's this building, knock it down. What are you going to design? You're going to be the new star architect. Never. So what we need to sit there and say is we need to change that and, and talk about like, what what can you do to make this, you know, thing really, really shine? Um, yeah. And I think we need to start really reading buildings into the whole life carbon and the whole circular economy of what's already there and what we can yeah. reuse. Yeah, I was going to say that really plays into the circularity of everything, isn't it? It's there. How can we reuse it? How can we refurbish it? 
Um, how can we rethink it? Because, I, I mean, the REBA competition where we, we met, that was all about taking a building that was desolate on the high street, you know, an, an old um, shopping mall or yeah. something, and turning it into a place of education. And they the, were brilliant. They, they were, were absolutely beautiful. brilliant. I was kind of heartbroken that they weren't actually going to be developed because I thought, wow, what yeah. an amazing innovative way to learn and I love the fact that they turned them into uh, you know civic areas there were parks involved in them you had to walk through them it was inclusive it was community-led I mean what I was thinking okay it's right in the middle of the city off a high street but what an incredibly innovative and creative place to go and learn and educate yourself as a school and and so why aren't we thinking like that or are we? Well, we're starting to. Yeah. Um, I mean, these competitions are getting more traction. We are becoming a lot more, you know, civic minded. The commons are coming back. Um, I think that there's a lot of um, community based initiatives. And I think there's a, I think what you don't hear about so often because they don't have the platform to advertise them so well. Um, but you have a lot of very, very cool, especially small scale and often young architectural practices that are really doing more grassroots um, projects and working with communities and really developing and enriching kind of the livelihoods and spaces, you know, of, of you know, the unsung, um, yeah, spaces. And yeah, I mean, we're living now in a new imaginarium, aren't we? Where... I'm not going to be expecting to work, uh, let's say nine to five, though no architects ever work <laughs> those hours, but, you know, to, you know, do a two hour commute to work in the office and then have my couple of weeks of holiday per year. Um, that, that whole kind of structure of how we're living has now changed in the yeah. last couple of years, not for everybody, but I think it has made us question about how we are living and what our am- input inputs and impacts are and what we want to be doing. Um, and yeah, I think we're seeing richer communities evolve and we are seeing, you know, the what happens when you take a lot of money out of the public sector for too long. We've got a, a broken society and we have, you know, a loneliness epidemic. We've got uh, mental health uh, crises, um, and which is also on the rise. And it's all interlinked, right? So us as active participants in society, I think we need to start questioning how we live and things like, you know, the shopping mall. You may love it, you may hate it, doesn't matter. But that that was also kind of a new new identity, new thing that was, it's a construct that was created, wasn't always there. So what is the equivalent of tomorrow? And I think, I mean, some of them is how, how we're living. If we have you know, uh, unaffordable childcare and we have uh, an aging population that is suffering with with loneliness. What about a co-living kind of situation? Yeah. You know, intergenerational, intercommunal um, relations. Like, I I mean, it seems so obvious and we just need a little bit of imagination. Yeah. 
And we need to be able to kind of tell the story in a way that it makes sense and becomes viable and we do it. And as you see, once once these things start, then they became normal. I mean, the first open plan WeWork office. Yeah, I mean, it seems totally insane. What do you mean we don't have our cubicles? We don't yeah. We don't have our own private space, the idea yeah. of privacy, you yeah. know? And then it became open and then and then no, the open became the, the social sphere. You know, yeah. we're going skateboarding inside the office. We got ping pong tables. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, these things evolve and we need to be questioning, you know, whether or not the structures of our, you know, culture enhance our livelihoods mm-hmm. and our relationships to one another another and also to our natural environment. I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And, and we've talked about you know, the coming together of a network of practitioners and sharing knowledge and communities and and people talking to each other and communicating. What about the role of activists uh, in all of this? And, and where do organisations like ACAN fit in? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we need we need people to hold um, institutions and each other to account. I mean, that's important. Right. And the term activists, I think, is now developed into a large spectrum of meaning. So previously, for me at least, activist was, you know, you got your banner outside and your signs and your outside parliament shouting and screaming and maybe, you know, you throw some paint on a car or something. And what I'm seeing now is the rise of the soft activist. So it's that parents that's got a couple of kids and a full-time job who on their bus ride home is helping you know to volunteer some of their time to to check some you know some net zero consultation papers or you know um, get involved in some events to help distribute some knowledge Um, so I don't I think activism is broad and um, we need, I think, also the big range. So you do have um, Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion, who um, I think are fantastic organizations. I'm really grateful that they're there. Um, I know a lot of people hate them and they're pissed off because um, they stop traffic and they make a nuisance. Um, but I think we need to start making noise because um, yeah. the rest of us who are quiet we're also not seeing, um, you know, the change happen so swiftly. So I think it's really, really important. And even if it's, you know, even if your contribution is small, I think, you know, getting involved and in, in, imbuing yourself in that network um, also just drives collective change. I think yeah. words are important. And I think, you know, making it normal that we need to start addressing these are yeah. is, is um, really important. Now, I mean, in terms of ACAN, I think the strength of organizations like ACAN is that you're not left to be represented by a body larger than yourself, as in Architects Declare, who's also a great organization, but um, they um, it's uh, their signatories of, of architectural offices. Right. So if you're an individual within that office, maybe you don't feel like you're doing enough or maybe you think you're doing enough, but actually you yourself aren't doing um, yeah. anything. Or maybe you want to explore something um, and you're very specifically uh, interested in, I don't know, uh, social justice um, and what that means in climate justice. Then you can join an organization like ACAN um, and start exploring that and making um, your voice heard and 
you know, meeting up and linking up with people of like minds. Fantastic. Brilliant, Brigitte. Well, we like to end our podcast asking all our guests the same three questions. So I'm going to throw the first one to you, which is the question, the title of the podcast, Can Marketing Save the Planet? Now, I was going to change this for you and say, oh, should it be communication? And you said, no, you know, we need to start talking about marketing into the environmental movement and and see it as a, a positive tool. So what are your views on the role marketing and communication plays? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, first, I'm going to rewind a little bit. I mean, I think one of the things with the environmental movement in general is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we were considered kind of tree huggers in the back country. Yeah. And to be honest, we might have been so, um, you know, buying into this capitalist system where money is dirty and anything corporate or smells of corporate or marketing is dirty. Um you know, was a big turnoff and that kind of led to a big split. So I do think it's important to call things as they are, not just be, you know, yeah. to, to whitewash words to make them sound, you know, more aligned with what we're doing. Marketing is communications and um, we are still human. We're not yet uh, robots and everything for me, at least is done through people, through relationships. Um, and in that we need to become better communicators. Um, Oration's important. Visual guides are important. Can marketing save the planet? Can communication save the planet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That And that is why it's important. When we talk about, you know, our political leaders standing behind this microphone, you know, saying their words, it's not just that I disagree with them on their levels. It's it's what the, what they're meaning, what the words stand for. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that's what we need is we need people to communicate in a way that gives us all an ability to move forward in a positive direction. So, yeah, um, yeah. can marketing save the planet? I'm going to go out there and say yes. Yay, hey. And what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time? Mm-hmm. I hope that um, specialisms like being a sustainability consultant doesn't exist. That is just the status quo normal. I hope that we have much more joined up thinking and cleaner and clearer processes. Um, there just seems to be so much leakages in the process pipe of getting any project done, right? From everything from um, finding sites to getting through planning, going through building control, the, you know, having a good client that understands what you're trying to do. Um, you know, having the assets uh, value kind of embedded into, um, you know, what you're actually working on and valued in the market. Um, so I think it's, it's too tricky now and too spiky. And, um, we are all learning. Um, some of us are, you know, more proficient or fluent or have been in the game a little bit longer, but we all need to um, kind of get onto that same page. So I'm hoping that in 10 years time that we don't have stupid policies like the VAT. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The incentives are in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. And also that we just have a maturity in the markets. I mean, if you've got an F rate, F energy rate at home, why... Does that not devalue your property 
what I mean, an A A star rated property where your energy bills are low should actually mean that your assets is is worth something and yeah. that should be reflected. And until we yeah. do that, then we can't really get that kind of buy-in as long as we're in this kind of economic system that, you know, we're still living in. Yeah. Um, that's what we need to be doing. I mean, and that's very similar to some of the things we talk about from a marketing perspective. If an organization has got decarbonization targets and marketing is just blowing that budget by doing activities or driving behaviors or consumption that that kind of goes against all of those decarbonization targets and, and blows them out of the window, then that isn't aligned. So so, you know, what you're saying is exactly the same thing. You know, it's a case of we need to have processes and and homes. So if somebody's gone to the trouble of making their home, whether they've done it themselves or whether, you know, it's just the way that the house has been built and that's how it is, that's an incentive because it's meeting the country's decarbonization yeah. targets. So that's where it should be incentivized. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's like if that's the objective and I'm aligned, tick. If I'm not aligned, then I, then there should be a problem. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. It's pretty simple, isn't it? But yes, it's not that complicated. <laughs> not really. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So our last question for you, then, Brigitte, is if you have one piece of advice to people around getting started with activism in their profession, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, there's not a right way or a wrong way. Um and there is no actual normal way. I think if you're already starting to think about this if there's something that's niggling you about your profession um start talking to people build a network yeah um you know going on it alone is very very difficult often lonely um and you start to question yourself you'd be surprised at how many people are actually aligned with what you're doing and together we're just stronger so yeah i mean it's quite simple you know, find your tribe, build your network yeah. and just do it. I think yeah. it's as simple as that. Don't worry about if you've got capacity or if you know what you're talking about or not, or if you're, you know, in the right room and, you know, you're able to articulate well enough, just start carving that out and, yeah. and see where it goes. Because, um, you know, change kind of spurs on bigger change. And I think... At least my experience at ACAN has shown that you can't really um, kind of ex- predict the direction that things go. You can just, you know, shape and curate, cultivate and see what happens. Yeah. And it's astonishing, actually, when you have a kind of very fertile ground of, you know, ideas and people coming together the rate and speed at which things happen is very, very inspiring and good. So you just get out there and do it. Fantastic. I mean, that momentum is real, isn't it? Bringing the right people to it. Love that. Absolutely love that. How can people find out more about the work that you're doing and indeed um, the role that ACAN or get involved with ACAN if we've got professionals um, or people, like you said, that are just really interested in, in, in that space? So um, we are in the 
current phase of rebranding because we've gone from architects to more built environment professionals. But um, for the moment, you find us um, architectscan.org. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a student's um, contingent, so that's StuCan. Um, so if you are a student or a young person that wants to get involved, that's um, another way. Of course, Architects Can, that's our um, X handle and our Instagram. Um, and we are, of course, on LinkedIn, but we also have quite a few different um, series on YouTube. So oh, our cool. materials group does a lot of very cool um, kind of courses, um, everything from low carbon foundations to yeah, decarbonization and working with stone, for example. So um, yeah, just reach out. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brigitte, on the podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful. I've loved finding out more about ACAN and indeed the work that you're doing. <laughs>